0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today is a huge special day for us because we're actually in a podcast studio. We've got video on, so welcome to all the YouTube. uh, Thousands of followers we've got (laughs) watching online, and I've got my guest giggling away here. Uh, Obviously, as we're on video, we've started with our prettiest guest, Adam Lawrence, back on the podcast. Welcome, Adam. How are you
1: doing? It's a pleasure, but I would have thought you could have found someone better looking, if you <laughs> <honest>, man. mate. <laughs> Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. We were busy yesterday. Tell the audience what we were up to. So we had a fab day, we'd organised a property business workshop, and we gave it a bit of a January flavour, so there was some goal setting and some strategic planning stuff in there. There was also a lot of stuff about productivity, time tracking, managing your time, and some good stuff, some good behavioural science stuff about how to get the best out of yourself, your team, other stakeholders, vendors, negotiations, uh, things like that, and quite a lot more uh, alongside that as well. And who was it for? So it was for people with property businesses. I think we probably, you could probably split the people we had yesterday into three categories, I think. Some who wanted a little bit of a kick up the January backside and thought it was a good time to do it. Some people who are operating property companies at varying scales, who knew they could do more and do better. So sort of relentless self-improvers and personal developers, I guess. And then some people who just, I think, wanted to come and see us and see if we were just as rubbish as a lot. of The rest of the people who say that property courses are good And hopefully they walked away pretty satisfied with the content we delivered. And basically
0: the idea is we're doing four of these workshops throughout the year. Each time is a different kind of syllabus, if you will. Um, And the next one we've got is on the 24th of April in London again. And the topic of that one is going to be uh, due diligence, mergers and acquisitions for SME property businesses, and joint ventures as well so if anyone's interested in that have a look at the show notes there'll be a link for um, tickets for that event on
1: the 24th of april it's sure to be a good one absolutely and it's just worth saying probably it is a workshop style format it's not you i love the way you use the word syllabus by the way but it is a, a workshop style format so it's not just us boring killing people with powerpoint or whatever it is interactive we'll be doing some case studies of that one that i know will go down really really well
0: Brilliant. So shall we give everyone a bit of a flavour as to some of the topics we might be talking about there? In terms of um, joint ventures, what are some of the typical traps that people fall into
1: um, when going into a JV with another party on a property deal or a property business? It's a, it's a really good question because I think I, I continue to get worried for people when I hear they're going into a JV or even considering it because... I used to have this arbitrary rule where I wouldn't work with anyone I hadn't known for five years, right? I thought five years, that's long enough, surely, to work out whether they're, they're good or not. But really, the reason why that was arbitrary and a bit silly was I might've had a coffee with you in 2016 and then not really known you for much longer, but then in 2021, the diary, the calendar ticks over and suddenly we can work together. So it definitely doesn't work like that. And when we started doing things like the, the business retreat that we used to do, you know, it was crunching a lot of time with someone in a small environment into a week but in that in that week you might get to know someone as well as you'd known someone you'd known for five years ridiculous as that might sound so i kind of phased that out and just went more with right what do do people check for example are they of the same values because you said yesterday when we introduced the workshop you and i actually you know agreeably disagree on a, on a number of things. We come, But that's because we come at things from a different angle. Now, we both see the upside in that, and it means that we work well together, right? A lot of people wouldn't necessarily be like that. They would just think, we all need to think the same about everything. You won't necessarily get the same answer out of me that you'll get from you. But what you'll normally get is both of us saying, this isn't necessarily right or wrong. This is the way that I look at it. This is the way that I've done what I've done. And so you need partners who are going to add things to that You need people who are different, because otherwise you're going to fall into traps like groupthink. If you always want every conversation to be easy, and us to agree on the same thing, what value is is one of us adding to that partnership? We need to be able to think differently. And you know, from our experience, when one or the other of us is particularly closer to something than the other, like all people, we sometimes get a bit of blindness and we're too close to it. And you need that second pair of eyes that goes, why don't we just do that? It's go... I don't know what think of that, but I didn't because I was so close to the sort of operational coalface. face. So I think people do do it too quickly. I think they should take it as really quite seriously. I think they should take that time to, you know, we talk about values, don't we? And we say, don't say what people want you to hear. Don't do that. You know, if you' trust, honesty,
0: integrity, all the things that really mean the same stuff, don't they? Transparency, but actually, it could be. I don't know. I've, I've He's got a Killerink of to Yeah, exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly. And there's nothing wrong with a bit of yeah. that in business at the right time, of course. So be be honest with them and be. Mm-hmm. So when someone says to you, uh, "Integrity is a classic one," then do they behave with integrity? Yeah. Observe what they do. When when I, there's a, a great book on values called The Values Factor, I right, by Dr. John D. Martini. But it's one of those books where you probably don't need to read the whole book because there's a few central points in there. So you can use one of those like Blink List or or something like that to get the the flavour of it. But one of the things he said when you work out your own values, which I did this exercise years ago, was look at what you are doing and that tells you what your values are. If you then don't like what you see, guess what? It's up to you to change it. So if you really want honesty, integrity and transparency, then you've got to make sure you're doing that. Act as you say. Do what you say you're going to do. I mean, absolute classic. So the 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 like valued thing if you haven't got that you you'll fall out Mm -hmm. you know you have to think about things like time horizons and expectations don't you because if you want to do something that we're going to exit in three years time whereas i only want to get involved in stuff we're going to hold for 30 years we've got a big disconnect there you know yeah we've got to get through that and i mean look it can still work as long as each party is aware
0: of the other party's wants and needs because aspirations change people's feelings change, people's wants and needs change, circumstances change, life happens. Absolutely. Exactly. And I think the big thing that people kind of the big trap is what happens if we disagree. It's a bit like you're going into you're going into a relationship with someone. So what happens if we do disagree on something? How do we come to an agreement? Or what's what's the deciding factor? Is it that a third party is brought in to have the deciding vote? Is it actually that we're not equal Um, don't have an equal weighting of the business or whatever the dealers were going into. So someone might have a deciding factor. And I think where people sometimes go into something, they think, okay, yeah, I'll have a deciding factor on that. And they might give themselves 51% of the ordinary shares. But what they haven't done is adjust the articles of association to show that maybe, well, special resolutions need... 51 percent of the shares rather than 75 percent of the shares because they might be thinking well I've got the majority of shares but that might not mean anything when it comes to actually control and voting so I think the main thing for me that comes from um, going into a joint venture especially if it's to, you're talking about shareholdings of a, of a company um, and if we remember that shares uh, give different rights so they give rights to votes or control give rights to capital and winding up and give rights to um, income so dividends normally um, I think you've got to look at right what is it that's going to happen if we fall out and how is number one the shareholding going to sort that out ie is someone going to have more shares than others or it could be even how do we engineer the shares to show that if something happens, is there a special event that triggers something? So it could be a great example is development. And you might say, right, um, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a fantastic developer, Adam. I want you to uh, put a million quid of your money into this deal, and I'm going to do it and we'll share the profits. And you might think, okay, that sounds okay. Tell me about the deal. And I tell you about this new uh, development. I'm going to build up the ground. It's going to take me 12 months. And you say, Oh, hold on a minute. I don't think that's going to take 12 months. That looks like a two-year project, but it's still okay. No, don't worry. I've got this. Well, you can engineer it so that actually, well, I can have control up to a certain event, but if certain hurdles aren't met, i.e. Um, points on the schedule, points on budget, then actually control returns to you and you get to take over it. So, There's all sorts of fantastic things that you can do with shares um, to create that. And that can be done on the articles of association, but it can also be done in a shareholders agreement. So do you want to kind of give everyone a quick rundown of the difference maybe between articles of association and a shareholders agreement and, and why you might choose one over the other to put some information about
1: your Agreement, really? Sure. I'm very happy to do that. I think just go up and back one level in terms of what you've just said and the first question in terms of what traps people fall into. They can be over-optimistic, and so they don't think, they don't spend that time... Like It's like writing a will or a prenup or something like that, very similar to a prenup, more legally binding normally than a prenup. But they don't think about these bits that could go wrong and spend that time because people are concerned that it's negative or they just don't think they just go in with blind optimism and blind faith and think, yeah, Rod's fantastic. It'll be great to work with him. I'm sure it'll all be fine, you know. But going going back to the, the Articles of Association versus the shareholders' agreement, ultimately one is going to be lodged and registered at the company's house and one is not. So, so one's, a, pub, one's, public, one's public, one's private. Exactly. And that's the, that's the big one, yeah. really. So the shareholders' agreement, you might use the shareholder agreement for all sorts of stuff. So it might be that you have got some shares in trust, Because you're working with someone from somewhere who is any of politically exposed, lives offshore, or wants to stay off company's house for other reasons, all those sorts of things. Now, these days you've still got to declare those trust interests to HMRC, of course, but that as yet is not a public information register. Although whether it becomes one in the future is, is a matter of speculation, of course, but... The public versus private is a, a big thing, but the shareholders' agreement is going to be... The Association is normally, even when amended, a pretty boilerplate-style document, sure. Shareholders' agreement, you can do a lot more with it. So, for example, one of the things that we've got in ours is perhaps if we decide we want to sell, then 90% of an RICS valuation might be deemed to be a fair value for one of us to buy the other out at. And that's because, you know, without the negotiation the agents that the overall frictional loss when you sell a big project or a you know there'll be some loss of rent there'll be some oh, these seven roofs need doing or whatever it'll be if you're not gonna bear that then 90 percent actually we agreed didn't we between ourselves yep. that was a fair price to to come but, out at really and i think every time you go into it i can't
0: kind of ram home this point enough But it's what happens when we disagree. Yeah. What happens? So it could be I want to sell, you don't. It could be what happens if one of us was to die? Okay. And our, um, I don't know, my, my shares might go to my wife or my kids. Um, well, you might not want to work with my wife or kids. So you could have uh, what's called cross option agreements mm. written into the shareholders agreement, which basically means that the other shareholders first get the opportunity to buy those shares um, at a X price or a predefined price. It, it could be that you've got an insurance product against the shares so that if that was to happen, the insurance would pay out um, the beneficiaries of the of the will. Um and the uh, shares would then go to the other partners. Legitimate business yeah. expense. I am not a chartered tax advisor, <laughs> but legitimate business expense. Absolutely. But it's all these things that when you go into business you're so focused on Um, optimism and what the future holds and how great things are going to be. You wouldn't bother getting involved in the first place otherwise, would you, if you didn't think good things were going to happen? Exactly. But it's so important to think, well, what happens when there's a disagreement? And the great thing about having this written down is every party knows where they stand in the event of something going wrong. Now, where most disagreements turn into kind of bitter battles is where... Right, we have disagreed on something, and now I feel that that someone's being unfair. But if it's written down in a document that you've both signed, (laughs) then we know what's going to happen in that event. It could be that we've both got equal shares on control, and actually what happens is we have to bring in a third party, uh,
1: maybe a Rick Severe to make the decision, or an asset manager. Absolutely, and you have to get into the weeds of some of the details. So you mentioned then in terms of if one of us wants to sell and the other one doesn't, well, there might be. That, that, that in itself, we probably need a bit more colour around that because if we get an offer at 130% of the value, perhaps that changes the person who doesn't want to sell's mind. Sure. You know, If we get an offer at best offer, we can get 70 pence on the value, perhaps the, the person who wants to sell changes their mind. So there has to be some kind of framework around. And, and I think in the first place, you want to work with, I mean, you know, Contracts come into play when there's a disagreement and a dispute. Otherwise, they're in a draw somewhere and they're forgotten about and they're they're good to have and absolutely best practice. But if you, again, coming back to the values and working with the right flexible people, you know, I've always decided ever since I started getting involved in JVs, I would try and have a number of partners Mm -hmm. so I could afford to be flexible. And if someone else needs and wants change, I'll do my best to accommodate them because normally as long as we're exiting in the right as long as I've got a say over how we're exiting and really what am I trying to do I'm trying to maximize the price we're going to exit at I'm pretty relaxed about if we sell stuff and that's the my so I think that hopefully makes me relatively easy to work with there's a whole number of things that may be difficult to work with as you know but that that hopefully makes me easy to work with <laughs>
0: we don't disagree a lot over the menu I'll be honest James <laughs> sharing stuff yeah sharing. exactly. Yeah, more, more the uh, uh, capital winding up there, isn't there. Yes, sure. um, so <laughs> that's one of the things we're going to go into a lot more detail on in terms of shares, articles of association, shareholders agreements, some more traps that people fall into and what to do when you do go into. Now, the other thing you mentioned was prenups in uh, divorce. Something else that people can do is a postnup. So it's after. So people might be thinking, well, we've already gone into business and actually... We're concerned that we haven't got this in place. Well, it's easy to get that down. You can change both articles of association and shareholders agreement as long as all parties agree to it. So that can be something that you can do after the event as well. So I think that's important too. But like I said, we're going to go
1: into an awful lot more detail on that on on the 24th of April. Well, this kind of segues nicely into, especially when you're thinking about getting into partnership with someone, it segues nicely into the due diligence side because some of that is a bit more soft and a bit more qualitative and all the rest of it. But of course, there is harder due diligence. That you need to be pretty good at being able to do, and then I, I, I'm always reminded of that phrase "bank-grade due diligence," which really annoys me because it's used as a bit of a, a sales pitch. And I always think,
0: well, banks bank, are terrible. Well, at due exactly,
1: <laughs> they've set some terrible examples of due diligence. How was the due diligence on the Mexican drug cartels, HSBC You know, it wasn't great, was it? Well, so, what about SoftBank on WeWork? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think. I think you need to think more weapons grade due diligence, really, than uh, the
0: bank grade. So what are some of the typical things? I mean, like look, if you're going into partnership with someone um, and the main if you're giving money into a partnership, I guess the main thing you want to know is, is this person or this entity going to be a good custodian of my capital? I.e., am I going to get it back? And, am I, and then, am I going to get any return back
1: on it? One of my favourite Uncle Warren phrases, return of investment before return on investment. But it's so important. Why chase that? What are you seeing at the moment with some of these schemes that are promoting 20% interest for basically unsecured loans into social housing, rent-to-rent contracts? I mean, there's a nuclear bond waiting to go off with, all of that. But what does the company making that offer, how long have they been around? Yeah. Who are the people behind it? Who have those people worked with in the past? How many dissolved companies, especially if there's been administration, receivership, liquidation, etc., have they got behind them on Companies House? Where we uh, have got a consultancy client there recently. was talking about someone he was going to get into a deal with. And he said, and this guy's done this, this, this. And I was like, but do you know, do you know that? Mm. Shall we actually go and have a look? Let's go now and have a look at the projects that his company owns because you can look that stuff up. That's the beauty of the transparency. One of One of the best ones I heard was uh,
0: again another another client saying similar thing going into the business with this person and actually they've done this and this and we said well that's not what their accounts show they go well yeah obviously accounts are a bit different I said but you've got shares in it so if the accounts aren't making profit you're not going to get any dividends back and it suddenly clicked with him that oh yeah okay (laughs) now this does matter and if this other party has control as well and there's nothing in an agreement to say if they haven't performed to
1: a certain level the he can take back control, then it's it's no good. And, you know, sometimes people level criticism about Companies House and Blaggers really use that to their advantage because Companies House could be 20 months behind and all the rest of it. And that is all true. Great. So where's the management accounts then? Sure. Presumably they're being prepared every month. Yeah. And they're all in a timely fashion and the balance sheet's in order and the P&L's in order, you know. So can I see them, please? It's,
0: oh, this person owns X amount of property and mm. has this amount of equity, and then you challenge them on what's uh, what's registered, and they say, "Oh no, it's all owned personally." Fantastic. Show me your show me your personal tax return then, because yeah. I need some sense. The property, some property page. You can see yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. that's the yeah. property page. Yeah. yeah. Weird that it never turns off, isn't mm. it? Isn't it strange? <laughs> isn't it strange? I mean, yeah. I think look, if if you if you can't uh, be if you can't um, see evidence and it's got to be evidence of this,
1: then I think you need to assume the worst in those sort of things. So, and, and you're always going to, because that's how people operate. They fill voids in information mm-hmm. with the worst possible outcome. So, you know, I'm pushing information towards people. I talk to investors and say, do you know what, you should, and they go, oh, yeah, we'll just, we'll get on with this. But do you know what, I'll, uh, I'll just, I'll take your word for it. No, 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 what you should be doing <laughs> is you should be asking me to do this. And this is why I prepared this for you. There it is that's where the money is that's why you know if there's questions to ask about people's company's house or whatever they should be answering them happily shouldn't they exactly um so what other points might we be talking about in terms of due diligence um on the workshop day on the 24th so i think we're going to talk about company's house style stuff definitely and accounts and there's going to be some some accounting related some other Intricacies around things like receivership and dissolution and ways of dissolving companies, and you know, those questions you need to ask. I think then you're going to be looking at other online due diligence and then offline due diligence as well. So it's a a complete picture of the three. Yeah, absolutely. And and
0: certainly, kind of when it comes to debt uh, of companies, it's not all just about what's registered as secured debt because quite often you can see some other debt and the accounts that isn't shown up and maybe some of the other secured creditors
1: might not be aware. So that's very important I remember years it. ago dealing with a situation where some, before um car charges worked in the way that they do today, people just refinance the same car five times. Change the plates and, <laughs> and they were getting they were getting away with stuff like that. And obviously it's fraud on a major, major level and that's now been tightened up. But the same thing can happen. If you say I've oh Rod, I've got this asset and it makes me ten grand a month, okay, great. Lend us I'll lend us 500 grand and I'll give you five grand a month, and I've still got cash flow. And then i go and do that six times, then effectively it's a glorified Ponzi scheme, isn't it?
0: Well, I, I always like it when someone comes, Oh, can you lend me uh, on this? It's a second charge. Okay, okay, what's the loan to value of the debt? And they say, Oh, it's 65%. Okay, no, that's the secured debt. I want to know the loan to value of the total debt on yeah. the company. Yeah. And suddenly, when you put in the bounce back loans and you put in all that
1: unsecured debt, it's 120% of it. And there's no way in hell I'm <laughs> lending against that. I can think of some, <laughs> sadly, real world yeah. examples like that. They've been quite high profile busts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll be talking about things like subordination as well and yeah. prior order priorities and all those sorts of things we'll get into on the day in detail. Absolutely. Um, so what about mergers
0: and acquisitions uh, in Specific to the SME property space, what
1: are we going to be talking about there? So, I think people like the idea. There's, a, there's so much out there that is not necessarily completely wrong, but there's a lot of misdirection and there's a lot of focus on the wrong sort of thing. So, like, for, like stamp duty when you yeah. buy
0: a uh, company and it's what the benefits example. are with that. Yeah, great, great. Example. Rather that, than looking at is, the
1: other benefits, this is the major benefit uh, by buying the company. Yeah. And also thinking that, you know, a company with my my staple 100 grand property or whatever i've got one one property in that company it's probably not going to stack up to buy the company there because you know you need corporate lawyers apart from anything else if you're going to do it properly i mean obviously you can do it without corporate lawyers but that's not particularly advisable and people make so many mistakes and i think obviously lots of people haven't necessarily either bought or sold a company before Uh, It's not as scary as is made out, and there can be some really, really significant benefits to it that we'll go into on the day where we can be talking, adding, I've done it a number of times where we put several hundred thousand less money into a deal because of the way that we've structured it. And there's just that bit of extra flexibility um, and you can be quite a bit more creative. And also some things become standard. So deferred consideration would be one, you know, it's much more typical in a company purchase and there's, it's an easier chat around risk, for example, and say, that this is where I'm exposed. This is how I'm seeking to to mitigate that exposure. So here's some examples of, of deals that I've done in terms of both uh, buying and disposal as well, and what worked well. And in typical Adam Lawrence style, guess what, they haven't all worked out brilliantly, and we'll go into the detail on the ones that haven't, because those are the ones where I've had a lot of learning, and hopefully yeah. people can get learning without spending the time or the money or both that I did in acquiring that that knowledge. Absolutely. Um, We're just going to
0: quickly move over to our sponsor now, 978 Finance, which is a company we both own who are fantastic. Uh, So we're going to hear from them. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic episode, but I just wanted to share some really exciting news with you. After a long time of wanting to be involved in a financial services business, I'm very pleased to say that myself and regular guest on the Rodcast, Adam Lawrence, have bought into 978 Finance. We are a directly authorised FCA-regulated mortgage broker who specialises in buy-to-let mortgages, commercial mortgages, and bridging and development loans. I've been very passionate about finance for a long time and have been part of financing a lot of very complex deals, as well as your typical buy-to-let and commercial mortgages. 978 Finance focuses on the customer journey and embodies the pragmatic solution-orientated finance for each case that I absolutely love. It's got some very, very difficult financing deals over the line for me, and now I'm really pleased to be part of the business. So, if you do have any new mortgages, refinances, bridging or development needs, please do get in touch with us. You can either contact myself or you can email simon at 978finance.com and we will make sure you're looked after. Let's get back to the show. So, one of the other things that comes up from people, actually I was speaking to someone on their workshop yesterday um and they were thinking about they're coming out of a project they're gonna have a bit of capital um there's a bit of time lag until they can put it into the next investment and they were talking about lending it out to a third party and things like that what are some
1: of the things we're going to talk about in terms of that on the workshop on the 24th of april so obviously this feeds on really nicely from the due diligence piece because I think people make, there's kind of this hamster wheel isn't there that exists where you get pulled into property and then single lets are amazing and then HMOs are even better and then service accommodations are even better and then forget property because you can do 4x or you can sell stuff on Amazon or let's get into crypto or let's lend the money to social housing leases as we said earlier on. So I think that people often again fall into traps of thinking, oh this is the well ne- this is Valhalla. Well, The thing about lending money is, apart from anything else, you're not getting exposed to capital growth normally. So you do need to be cautious. You're front-loading it all into income. Mm -hmm. And it can be good if you're lending to the right people and you're lending to the right projects. And those two things have got to come to This This is not an either-or situation. It needs to be both. So you need to be able, I think, to underwrite because that's what you're doing. If you don't realise you're doing it, you definitely are. It's a very good skill to be able to underwrite a deal. and yeah. It's not to be taken for granted. You know, how do you underwrite the person and how do you underwrite the deal? right? Because this is what... And you've you, probably been on the other side of the fence of this, a lot of people listening. So when they've had an underwriter who perhaps they can't get their head around a certain thing and you've got a lot of frustration and you've just got to break it down with clarity and go back around the houses to try and explain it to them. But... Now you're on the other side of the fence and this is what you've got to do. You are the credit risk department. You are the underwriting team. You are, to an extent, at least instructing the solicitors. I heard you are using a solicitor for your loan agreements if you're doing this stuff. And then, you know, this is effectively a trading business. How are you keeping, what have you agreed in terms of keeping me abreast of the project? You know, how often are you going to check in? When are you going to make payments? Are you servicing the loan? If you are, can I verify that you can afford to service the loan? Where's that money coming from? And like you said what other money is in this deal that i can or can't see mm-hmm. um and can i see some up-to-date particularly balance sheets in real time that can show actually when you look under the hood And well, i've seen this before when i've looked at buying companies oh well you know it's worth this and it's only got this debt against it and oh yeah that's the secured debt and there's four unsecured two percent a month loans going out somewhere and it's like Oh, so that's where the cash flow problems are coming from then. Mm-hmm. That's not too hard to work out. So are we taking those out? No, I just need more money. No, more money's not going to solve this problem. So, you know, people often lend at haste and repent at leisure, don't yeah. they? Because again they get they get sucked in by the snake oil salesman or just someone with the magnetic personality type, they're not getting what they really need, which really you want to lend to people who are dead boring don't you that's what you really want to do who are dead safe who aren't going to they're not going to go and spend it at the casino I mean if so. there's there isn't two more
0: boring people in the world
1: than me <laughs> and you that's probably. our investment pitch for the day I passing, absolutely
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you do you yeah. do I mean it's amazing the amount of people I speak to especially kind of this whole thing about SAS pension investors and things like that who lend to third parties and it really kind of it's, it's essentially peer-to-peer lending really isn't it yeah um and it's amazing when I speak to them and I say how many loans came back on time that you were promised. Not necessarily what was in the contract, but when you were told. I'd be amazed if that number is more than
1: 5%. Well, you you know what the uh, – the, and this is bridging lenders who are good at this stuff, yeah. who obviously do have underwriters and all the rest of it. It's been, you know the old um, a third, a third, a third in development, third on the land, third on the delivery, third on yeah. the profit. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah been nonsense for a long time but a similar exists in bridging where it's like 30-30-30-10 where it's 30 come back early, yep. 30% come back on time, 30% come back late and guess what the 10% is reserved for, 10% don't come back at all mm. and they go into recovery and that's the old ad adage of, of bridging so if that gives you a rough idea, guess what if someone's come to you or to the private market, and that's the professionals, because they can't get a bridging loan, <laughs> yeah. they're probably going to be in the 10% and it's happened to them before or something like that. So, you know, I'm not trying to put people off lending. When done right, in between projects, it can be Absolutely. a great idea, especially if you're getting involved in multi-layered planning that, especially in this day and age, is going to take years and years. And you know you don't need that money for that time. People often need money. People, there's good businesses that make good money out of lending people money for their tax, knowing that it's coming back because developers have a habit of using the money they should have set aside for their tax bill into the latest project to save them from borrowing it. Mm-hmm. But then they've got to backfill what they've got. And all, all these are, are perfectly legitimate. But making sure you know what the funds are for is one of the absolute key things that people don't necessarily get right. Mm. They, just, they can get very tunnel-visioned on, right, so I know I need security... And, as you kind of already touched on, first charge is everything. Well, actually, hold on a second. Why are we talking about first? Ch- I've seen first charge loans at 110% of the value of the asset. Exactly. Well, well done. Good luck with first charge there, mate. But that's, I mean, people, I remember speaking to a lender who was,
0: who was um, quite experienced. They were in, an individual, did quite a bit of peer-to-peer peer lending, and they said, oh, I, do, um, I only lend on these types of charges. And I said, well, why is the charge... The primary kind of thing surely it's the loan to value because what would you rather have a first charge that goes to 95% or a second charge that only kind of goes it's from 40, 40 to 50%? Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think we'll be running through in quite a lot of detail about that. And I think what that helps is not just people who are looking at lending money, but it really helps people who want to borrow money Absolutely. understand how to. Really attract that type of investment, whether it's debt and also equity as well, because you're looking at it from from each party's kind of position, and so then it's much much easier to create a deal that works for each other. Um, and I think that's the that's really
1: the key when it comes down to kind of bringing investment into it into a deal, into a joint venture, what have you. I think in any negotiation in business in general, the people who can put themselves in the other person's shoes. Like the best business people solve problems for people. They haven't necessarily even got those problems themselves. Sometimes they have. Sure. But when they can solve the problems of the masses, that's the point. And that's what you're trying to do. Put yourself in I mean, we started this podcast by saying how beautiful I was, obviously. But wow. I would prefer to be should have finan- got sex A <laughs> new sponsor. But I would prefer to be financially attractive. Yeah. Because that's what, yeah, I talk about remaining financially attractive. <laughs> that's what I want from a balance sheet perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, right, I think on, on that
0: lovely note, we'll probably finish there. But um, let's run through, what's the cost of this workshop? Is it £375 so plus VAT we, for early
1: do, bird tickets? We'll do some early bird tickets at 375 plus VAT. And then we've got some VIP for dinner tickets. We'll do an early bird at 500 plus VAT. And then it'll be going up twenty percent when we're nearer the time because we need that time to plan the venue and get the catering right and all those other things. And if people buy at the last minute, it gets difficult. So there's there's a there's a last minute buying tax on there, but there'll be plenty of time for the early okay. bird. There'll be a couple of months of early bird pricing. So. Sure.
0: And it's an all day thing from sort of nine thirty to five thirty. Um and then there's a, for those VIP tickets, there's a dinner afterwards as well, uh, where we kind of had a good chat and we, we did it yesterday. The feedback seemed to be really good. So yeah. looking forward to that again. Thanks, Adam. As always, great to have you uh, on. And uh, thanks for being our first guest in the studio. Thanks, Rod. It's always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.